Welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Losses weekly podcast with me, Colin Lambert. And this week it's an all PL affairs. I'm joined by Judy Ross, editor in chief of PL and my boss um, on the quiet. Um, Judy, we've just finished the third of our dialing days. Um, we had London, Frankfurt, and New York. I wanted to sort of pick up on a couple of things there and, and sort of share some thoughts around what we heard. But I thought probably the best place to start is with the New York sessions because that's our most recent. And I think that was the, the one that looked at the buy side from a buy side angle a lot more than the others did. So what would you say grabbed your you know ear or eye during the New York sessions? I thought what was um, most interesting is we've seen this volatility return since kind of early days of this year. Um, at the beginning, I, people were saying it's great to have volatility, but not this kind of volatility. Um, But I think that's kind of evolved and and become more of a a norm. Um, People are trading with volatility now. Uh, What struck me from the panel was that the general feeling was that volatility is here to stay, um, at least through the end of this year and and into next, um, because there is no end in sight to these yeah. unknowns that we're, we're facing and the market disruption as a result, the global disruption, really. Um, so I don't know how you are viewing that in terms of the FX world and the health of the industry, given all the changes that have occurred. I thought it was interesting. I exactly picked up on that point as well when they're talking about volatility sort of returning and not getting back to normal because I kind of feel at the moment I'm being bombarded by people in the FX industry telling me that oh, we're back to where we were before. Well, we're clearly not. And I think the problem is, is that this is what happens when everybody follows data. So we all look at the same data and the data says that spreads have come in. And um, there was something today, we were recording this on the Thursday, there was something came out today from CLS, um, MEFG and Mosaic Smart Data. They're doing a new... Um, FX liquidity service. And they're saying, oh, yeah, it's volumes and market liquidity is about to 71% of what it was pre-COVID. Yes, it is. And, and the data doesn't lie. I totally get that. But it's when everyone says, oh, we're returning to normal, that it bothers me. Because I look at this, and what that panel told me was, exactly to your point, we don't know how long this is going to go on for. We still have uncertainty. You know, if you look at COVID, there could be a second wave. There may not be. There's just We, we are just totally up in the air. And what we're doing at the moment is saying the data tells us back to normal. Well, the data will tell us it's back to normal until guess when? The minute we're not back to normal. And then funnily enough, the data will turn around and say, oh, we're not not back to normal anymore. Because data is retrospective. So I kind of think that we're going to have a period of uncertainty is going to continue. I certainly think we're going to go more feast and famine. Um, in FX, which we won't probably in other asset classes. Other asset classes will probably have, I guess, more broader sustained trends with the odd really sharp correction. Whereas I sense in FX, our, our nature at the moment is, you know, nothing, 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 bang, everything happens, nothing, nothing, bang, everything happens. Mm-hmm. So I suspect what we're going to do is have a lot of brief periods of really extreme volatility um, interspersed with long periods of well, pretty much boredom. As to whether that's good for the industry is an interesting one because I think um, in some ways this could be a bigger test for the FX industry's infrastructure than what we saw in March. You know, we know that we can handle 
extreme volumes, extreme ticket numbers. You know, there's, there's been the odd hiccup, I suppose, in the system. Um, but generally speaking, things have held up well. But I suspect this is more of a challenge when you get into this sort of, you know, and I'm beginning to hate the phrase, but new normal, um, where, you know, it's in burst. Yes, we can take bursts, but can we handle the market risk? What happens if a technology goes wrong in that thing? And my sense is that risk appetite in FX is still declining because people I'm talking to are saying, it's a negative, you know, it's a glass half empty point of view, but the fact is they're looking again, well, the systems have worked really well, but we know we're, we're heading towards our next glitch. And if the next glitch happens when we're in the middle of a bout of volatility, then it could be really serious. So they're kind of dialing back their risk um, appetite until such time as they can get more people in the office to work and make sure system robustness and they can you know, produce upgrades and patches and whatever else they do as part of their normal um, routine. So that's why I don't think we'll return to normal. That's why I agree with the panel that I think volatility will continue because um, it'll just be a slightly different nature. This is still a very, very nervous, skittish world. Um, I mean, I was talking to someone earlier today about options and they were saying that, you know, I mean, the options market was in a pretty unhealthy place in March and April. And whilst it has recovered a little bit, it's still not good because, you know, spreads and, you know, vols are multiples of what they were. And people are not willing to quote because, you know, again, it's a risk trade that they're putting on. So as far as that panel is concerned, I thought they absolutely nailed it. And I thought they got it right, right from the start in terms of, yeah, you know what, everybody, it's all good. And we know that it's been easier since March, but don't think we're out of this yet. So, yeah, to me, that was, that, was, that was a really good start. The other one that interested me, actually, I don't know what you thought of it, was the last panel of the day in New York, looking at esoteric strategies. Yeah, I, um, I thought there were a couple of interesting parts to that one as well. Um, one was one of the portfolio managers talking about investing only in niche strategies I think that was interesting because it's getting away from the the correlated major markets. Um, it's he said, you know, a big fish in a small pond, um, where you are just one of many going in the yeah. same direction in the bigger markets. Um, so the niche strategies part I thought was interesting, um, as was his his reasoning for using hedge funds for diversification. The problem. I have though with that and, and, and I agree 100% that and I've been arguing this till I'm blue in the face there is a problem I think there's a, there's a no pun intended an institutional problem in the sort of investor space in that hedge funds need to be of a certain size before investors will allocate to them so they don't want to be too much of the fund to be invested in and to get into that you generally need to be in the mainstream markets so inevitably the mainstream markets draw an increasing amount of the money and it is a true niche player that will lead to these trades and I'm, I'm you know the fish analogy is a great one you know you want to be one of you know 100 people around a pond trying to catch 100 fish you don't want to be one of 500 people around that pond trying to catch 100 fish or 5000 so i think that point comes across really well um i guess the challenge for that model is that it's higher risk, isn't it? You know, we're talking about 
the phrase I kept on using, if I remember, was capacity constrained or idiosyncratic markets. Um, when you hear that, I think most investors suddenly go, yeah, I've got a problem with that because that means that when things, when the smelly stuff hits the fan, there's no liquidity to get out of it. So I guess you've got to be able to handle some serious drawdowns as a manager and as an investor if you're going to go into these strategies. I mean, ultimately, isn't? do you think this is just a question of investors needing to be brave? <laughs> uh, I mean, I always think that, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, because it is I mean, really... I just heard following and, and yeah. I don't see how that's going to be a profitable long-term strategy. Well, it is if you, I mean, and that's the interesting thing. It is if you're in a data, if you're in a trend market and, you know, everyone's looking at the same data. And again, we come back to the data. You know, everyone's looking at very similar data sets here. So therefore, you're going to have highly correlated returns. Whereas if you are in these idiosyncratic and capacity constrained uh, markets, um, you are going to be probably different the only thing is i think your drawdown is going to be a hell of a lot worse when they come but then it's a risk reward game isn't it and and if you want true diversification which every and you know everyone bangs on about you know diversification diversification and yet all i hear them talk about is risk on risk off where's the diversification in that it's it's a it's a you know it's a difficult one to go back actually to the first panel i thought what was really interesting um was when the panelists were asked what strategies are working and they came back to macro discretionary um because they are nimble strategies you know if you're if you're a systematic you know um you know emerging mark latam emerging market equity investor then basically you're going to be long at latam equity markets there's no rush you can go with that is there with macro, obviously, you have that ability to be, you know, I guess there's a natural long vol to it. Um, but generally speaking, with the macro, yeah, they are the ones that can sort of look at the situation away from the data or use data to support their initial finding. And I thought it was interesting that those, you know, investment advisors thought that, you know, quant macro discretionary was, were the ones that were going really well. Um, I guess the other thing, that come, and this will this will get people rolling around. Um, those have been listening to this podcast for a long while. The other thing that struck me about it was CTAs, and how there was the sense. I don't know if you got the sense as well that they felt that CTAs had underperformed expectations. Yeah, I mean, a couple of years. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess so. But the last couple of years, they haven't maybe needed to outperform with they? because i mean obviously the market has been going north but you know the cta is a classic hedge against you know collapses in equity markets you know cta's lost less but they still didn't provide that real diversification so i'm wondering whether we need to rethink what the cta adds to a program because you know at heart and this is where everyone groans in the audience at heart i still think they're trend followers and cta's to do really well need a trend now Back in the day, it was a downtrend in equity markets. They could jump on that and do really well. And that was weather for diversification. I think the nature of markets at the moment is such that these trends don't exist. Yeah, or they're micro trends. So maybe the CTAs have got to change how they do it. They've got to look to become more short-term, more discretionary, more nimble to go back to that first panel. But um, 
can they do that? And if they do that, does that mean they end up style drifting and all of a sudden the investment advisors and asset owners go, oh, well, I can't have a CTA because you're no longer what I'm looking for. It, it's, it's just a weird one to me how these things work. Yeah, I mean, there's, we've got volatility, so look for long vol. There's your, there's your diversification. Look at the um, hedge fund indices we're seeing and CTA indices. You know, vol strategies are making an absolute fortune where the others are losing it. So the vol strategy within CJ is working really well. So, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Um, we might come back to some of the other stuff in there in just a bit. Um, we're going to take a quick break, and I want to come back and ask you about something really interesting I picked up in the New York Darling Day. So we'll be back in just a second. Did you know that if you sign up before July 1st, you can subscribe to Profit and Loss for just £130 sterling for a whole 12 months? That's a huge 30% discount on your regular subscription rate. Or pay just £230 for two years. Go to www.profit-loss.com plans and sign up today. Or email info at profit-loss.com for more information to ensure that you never miss out on the latest FX news. Okay, right. So, Julie, you have been following crypto a lot more than me. I found it really interesting in the New York um, dial-in day to hear investment advisors, you know, allocators talk about crypto as part of a portfolio. Now, I may be wrong, and you can correct me on this. I'm sure you will. But I don't think I was hearing that six months ago or even a year ago, certainly not two years ago. Is that right? And I mean, what did you think when you heard people talking about crypto as part of an investment portfolio? Is this the holy grail for, you know, institutionalization? Um, There's a few facets to the holy grail, I think. Um, You know, getting institutional involvement in crypto has been a theme that crypto... Uh, crypto enthusiasts have been after for, you know, been talking about for years. Yeah. Um, And we have seen steps towards that, you know, for the past few years, we've seen um, custody solutions. We've seen, um, you know, we've heard a lot about prime brokerage being a necessary step. Um, This past week has been uh, amazing in terms of the, the addition of, of prime services coupling with these big names. Um, we just had uh, BitGo launch BitGo Prime under Nick Carmi, who's, you know, from our traditional FX world. Um, they've also made some interesting acquisitions um, and uh, in the kind of, and added to their services in lending and taxes and portfolio services. Um, so that's, quite a few facets to the institutionalization. Um, Coinbase yesterday also made a big announcement. Um, they're acquiring Tagomi, which I, I believe was uh, the first um, prime broker service out, uh, okay. available, but I could be wrong. So It doesn't matter. <laughs> Come on. You, you listen to this podcast occasionally. We're happy to make a statement that may be, you know, slightly less than factual. <laughs> I may retract next week. Yeah, exactly. um, just, just be confident. Just be yeah. confident. <laughs> and then uh, Genesis, I believe it was last week with their um, acquisition of, and I'm going to guess it's pronounced Volt, 
V O I guess so. Yeah. Um, so those are, those are all kind of necessary steps towards kind of true institutionalization of, of part mm-hmm. of this crypto universe. Um, I think uh, David Mercer from LMAX uh, Group, LMAX Digital, yep. um, he, he brought up the concept in an article I wrote recently on the Bitcoin halving, um, the ABCs of crypto um, for institutionalization, wait, let me try again. For ABC, institutional adoption is the A. Yep. Banking solutions is the B and credit is the C. So I think we're starting to see those uh, reaching fruition. Um, they're not mature yet, but they're, they're, I mean, big, big steps this past week even. Yeah. Um, so I think that's been interesting, um, and that's probably why it made such a, a bigger splash um, during the conversations. I mean, these are, these are firms that have been in the space, though, crypto, whether it's FX and crypto like Typhon, um, or uh, Fidelity that you know has its traditional side and its now digital asset side. Um, so, so these are things that they knew were going to happen, but it takes time. So I think that's why we're hearing about it more. Okay. I, I, I'm a little bit ambivalent. I'm not, I'm not quite sure where I, where I sit with this one, as is often the case with crypto. Um, because another thing David Mercer said was around, you know, why we need, you know, banks to be offering a lot of these services here is B and is C to that matter. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, he made the point in the discussion with me in Neil Darling Day that, you know, for, with all the best will in the world, um, in, institutions do not want to face LMAX Group as a counterparty. Right. And it needs a bank to come in there and do that. And, and I tend to agree with him. And is that not a problem for these firms? Because, I mean, with all due you know, respect to these firms, um, they're not heavily capitalized, are they? You know, they are, generally speaking, used to dealing with smaller amounts of money you know have they got the framework to really handle big institutional money and i mean around the security of of assets and um just the due diligence and regulatory requirements needed to to manage an institution's part of an institution's portfolio is there a problem that these firms you know they're all they're out there and good on them they're having a good crack at it but is the problem not that when it comes down to it a um, a BlackRock or a um, you know Union Investments, uh, Aberdeen Investment, Invesco, whatever. They're not going to want to face a firm that you know, frankly, most of the investors have never heard of. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I mean, we are, I think, a, a very long way off, perhaps, um, before we see banks get involved in the space. Um, yeah don't know what's going to bring them in. I mean, we've seen the large non-banks in there. Um, in terms of pricing or providing credit? Oh, no, pricing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, I, you know, is this a market for traditional players or is it for the more nimble players? Um, you know, I think these 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 types of firms are more nimble and, and they're creating solutions for themselves mm. and they're hiring people from traditional markets to help recreate it in this market. So yeah. if big players will not get into it, 
they're gonna, I think, miss out of this this world. Um, you know, they're they're looking more at the uh, safer types of stable coins, I think, and you know, concepts of like stable he's, stable coins. Yeah, here's a challenge then. I mean, uh, digital central bank digital currencies. Yeah, here's a challenge to that one though, because I mean, what's I, I totally accept your point around you know, the other banks. If the banks don't get into it, then others will, but. I still think the problem remains the same. The type of a lot of the institutional money we are trying to attract, and we're looking at attracting point oh oh two percent probably of the investment pool, and it will still be you know billions of dollars. Um, but that money is traditional. You know that that money's not new providers either. It's not coming from. It's not necessarily new money coming into this stuff, is it? So that's my problem with it is that yes i totally agree the new providers will have the filter themselves but is it a chicken and egg situation whereby the institutional money that everyone's talking about will not go there because that money is very conservative by its very nature and therefore it wants to face off against somebody it feels comfortable with um i find you know, it yeah go on i mean part of it is is yes um the other side of it is Look, if the other markets are not <laughs> making money for these companies, they're yeah. gonna they're gonna take a chance on crypto. Um, they're gonna they're gonna try it out and see, you know, if they can make money there. Every traditional asset manager just had a heart attack when you said take a chance. <laughs> <laughs> I talk about those guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I guess you know, and this won't be the first time on this podcast or on any panel that I've argued with myself. To argue with myself. You know, you could say the same about the FX industry in many ways because you've got, you know, prime brokers. A lot of, you know, there's a lot of customers out there going like, you know, okay, I need to face, I needed to face a prime broker. And then the PB suddenly started was restricting credit. And a lot of pretty good size hedge funds found themselves without a PB. And I guess there was a desperation to it in some ways. But, you know, if you'd have asked, I don't know, 15 years ago when PB was really starting to, you know, grow in its, in its um, influence in the market would, and I'm trying not to name firms here because it's, you know, I don't want to sound disrespectful to those firms, which I certainly don't intend to be, but um, you know, would a $500 million hedge fund back in the day face off against a prime of prime that they do now? Yeah, they probably, they probably wouldn't do. But I guess because the, the, the big PB said, no, you can't PB with me, they needed access to the market. So therefore they did go to the, you know, the primer primes. But then those primer primes were backed by the banks, aren't they? It's just another link in the chain, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So do you think that's what it will be? Do you think maybe the banks will fund, you know, maybe the banks will provide the backing for these crypto prime shops? Hmm. That's a good question. Some may, um, you know, some are in that custody space. So yeah. it's less of a leap for those ones, um, that are dipping their toes in that area. Um, you know, but again, they're, they're the almost more nimble firms. I mean, you know, if a bank, yeah. can be nimble, uh, you know, I'm thinking of like bank of New York. Yes. State Street, those those types of banks can, you know, probably move that direction 
more quickly than say, you know, the marquee, you know, big yeah. Although big having said names. <laughs> I mean, having said that, I mean JP Morgan announced recently they were willing to bank some crypto exchanges. Mm-hmm. They met certain criteria, weren't they? Yeah. So maybe that's the starting point. I mean, that's been an interesting one from from you know. And I'm sure, like you know, you know, Jamie Dimon's personal views, not those of J.P. Morgan, but from effectively sort of writing off crypto and saying, look, you know, we're nothing to do with this, they've kind of swung around quite interestingly as an institution, haven't they, to to be at least investigating the crypto world? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I wonder if you see similarities between the development of of prime brokerage in crypto and, you know, lessons they could learn from FXPB because um, we've seen FXPB kind of really take a hit in these past few years. Um, what would you say a crypto firm looking to offer these services ought to look out for? Um, I think they need to do probably stronger risk analysis than they probably do. I think the problem is when you're dealing with a, with a largely retail client base as they have been, I think the problem becomes, you know, okay, so if a few customers take a hit, it doesn't matter because the amounts involved aren't that big. But if you're suddenly PB into like larger, larger amounts and bigger firms, then your risk assessments and your risk monitoring capabilities have to be tip top and you have to invest heavily in it. And, the, and I think, you know, the one thing I would say is to a firm looking to get in this space is, you know, don't overreach because I think the FXPB space to a degree, you know, overreached itself um, a couple of times. Um, certainly fees went way too low for the service that was being provided. Yeah. Um, so I think you've got to keep, and that's another, you know, another risk thing, but you know, the systems you've got to invest in to manage risk. And especially when you get into crypto versus crypto trading, yeah, at the moment they're largely yeah they're, they're largely managing Bitcoin, but I guess yeah the risk monitoring you have to have and the the what if scenarios you have to go through for Bitcoin, yeah we we could be a twenty percent move away. It's all very well and you know it sounds nasty. It's not meant to sound nasty, but it's all very well saying okay we've had a twenty percent move in Bitcoin. We've made margin calls on these four thousand retail investors. Um, some have been wiped out. Sorry about that, but you knew the risk when you're coming into it. It's a whole different thing with that and being able to manage a margin call with an asset manager who themselves have 20,000 accounts that all have an allocation to, to crypto. So I think, yeah, to me, I would say the biggest thing they've got to do is invest in the risk systems. And again, this brings me back to the fact that you know, FXPB grew up in banks. And then divested out. So I kind of find myself with David Mercer on this one saying, I think the banks need to lead the way, allocate their risk budgets, you know, bring crypto into their risk systems, and then it can filter down. Because I'm not sure, you know, all these firms, say they're low capital base, um, can they really sustain the level of investment that they need to do to manage the risk of multiple multiples of accounts? and Dollars under dollars under um, under control that they do now. Mm-hmm. Be an interesting one. Yeah, and particularly as they develop, you know, things like lines of credit, which don't really exist in crypto yet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in in many ways, that should help build market depth. Which you could argue that you know the PB helped 
dampen volatility in FX because it enabled you know HFT strategies, for instance, which basically took market efficiencies, market inefficiency out of everyone's lexicon. So you could argue that you know um, yeah extending lines of credit and PB could take volatility down, which makes it easier to risk manage. But I think what we found, even in FX, you know, you're talking the most liquid market in the world and Euro Swiss is one of the most liquid pairs in the world. It takes one thing and you can wipe out half an industry. And I guess that's what the crypto world has got to be aware of because, you know, they're coming at this from a very, a much different volatility profile than FX PB did. Um, so yeah, invest in those. Anyway, we shall see. That's us for this week. Um, thanks very much, everyone, for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week as usual. Um, in the meantime, have a very good week.